following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. You know, there's something special when a baby is born into a family, whether it's your niece or your nephew, your grandchild or your son or daughter is the family gets around and they start looking at the baby to determine who the baby looks like. And someone's leaning in at the little crib and like, well, like right here he looks like his mom, but here looks like his dad or, or whatever it is. I have a nephew um, on Rebecca's side and he looks just like his uncle Mark. And even with every passing year, I mean, he looks more and more and more like his uncle. And so I'll never forget when, our, when, when Rebecca and I were um, pregnant with Scarlett, we were talking about like what, well, I wasn't pregnant with Scarlett, just for clarification, Rebecca was the only one pregnant with Scarlett. I just want to be absolutely clear about that, okay? Let me start over. When Rebecca was pregnant with Scarlett, we started this conversation about who's she going to look like, and one of the physical attributes that we really care about that are different between us are our earlobes. So Rebecca's earlobes connect directly to her face. Mine kind of droop down a little bit and then connect. They look really noble like that. They just, the way they connect to my face, and we had done some study. Rebecca had been in an anatomy class and learned that one, that's actually genetic between those, and so we had this kind of friendly debate going, and I'll never forget, um, Scarlett is just born, she's crying, and she's like the first like two minutes of her life, places her down on Rebecca, and I think literally my first words, like I'm crying, and I'm like, she has my earlobes, okay, (laughs) and um, nurses are looking at me like, really, that's your priority right now, and so... There's all these, these physical traits we look at and we see, okay, who does the baby look like or who do they look like? And, um, and so for a long time, we always thought, you know, Rebecca, she, she's got uh, dark hair, my wife, dark hair, dark eyes, and Scarlett has blonde hair and blue eyes. And so we kind of always thought maybe she looks more like me. And then Rebecca goes home to Maryland and she found a picture of her when she was the same age as Scarlett. She found this picture right here. And... Um, And we figured, okay, maybe we have to reassess some things because, man, she seems like same hair, same. I mean, she looks so much like our daughter right there. And so, you know, you never totally know these physical traits are always changing. You're trying to figure out who does the baby look like. But that's just the the physical traits. There's so many other types of traits we get from our family and that we pass down. I mean, there's all, it's not just the physical things. It's not just hair color and eye color and earlobe shape that we get from our ancestry. There's a whole other pile of traits that we get. We get this, we get personality. We get things like your beliefs. We get perspectives, values, tendencies, habits. And in that whole pile of traits that we receive down through the line that kind of just land in our lap, some of those, we would like for them to remain recessive and not pass those down. And some of those, like, you know what? That's a strength. I would like that for that to be dominant and to pass that down. The physical traits we have pretty much no control over, but those other traits we actually have more control over. Attitudes, perspectives, values, habits, tendencies, those are things that there's a possibility we can draw a line in the sand and say, no, that one is not going any further than me. 
But that's, not an, that's easier said than done. That is not an easy thing to do. But this passage in Scripture is going to speak directly into that, and it's going to help us address what are we passing down through the generations. We're going to be looking at a book in the Bible. Uh, it's called Numbers. It's the fourth book in the, Old Test, in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and we'll be in Numbers chapter 14. And a little bit about um, the section of the Bible that this is in. The first five books of the Bible that Numbers is in is called the Law. And the Law contains these, not only stories about God's people, Israel, but it contains these expectations that God, these laws, these rules, these expectations that God has for his people. And so we learn a lot about the character of God. But there's also a great story that goes through there, and it's about how God's people, they end up in Egypt and they get enslaved in Egypt. All the people of Israel, they're, they're growing and growing in the numbers, but they're enslaved by a pharaoh, and for generations, they have no freedom. They are treated very cruelly, and finally, God sends someone to rescue them, someone he's going to work through named Moses. Last week, we talked about when Moses got the call from God to go back to, to Egypt, and when he goes back to, to Egypt, God does these powerful things to demonstrate to Pharaoh that Pharaoh, you don't want to mess with me. I'm the one true living God. He does these powerful miracles that these called plagues that get Pharaoh's attention, and finally Pharaoh releases God's people. And they leave slavery. They go out into the, into the desert, but Pharaoh changes his mind. And once they've got their backs to this sea, the Red Sea, Pharaoh sends his chariots chasing after them. Now remember, Egypt is the superpower of the world at this time, so this is the most fearsome army chasing down these helpless people. And they start complaining. They start saying, why did you bring us out here to die? And God says, and Moses says, do not fear. God will fight for you while you keep silent. And so God then parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. There's this crazy miracle before their eyes. They get to the other side. Chariots go riding into the sea. The sea closes up and wipes out the entire army. It was like God defeated the entire army of Egypt without the people of Israel needing to lift a finger. They go to uh, Mount Sinai. That's where Moses re received the law, the Ten Commandments from God. And then they proceed through the wilderness to the Promised Land. This is the, the very fertile part of that region that God is giving over to them. But he warns them, you're, you're, I'm taking you to this land, but there's going to be battles there. There's going to be people that you're going to have to fight against. So what they do, they get to the edge of the promised land, they send out these spies, spies goes, these spies go into these different cities, and they come back to give a report. Now two of them, two guys named Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, man, this is a beautiful land that God's brought us to. Yes, there's some kind of scary cities there that we might get into some fights with, but God has delivered us before we can do this. But all the rest of the spies said this, you're crazy. This is undoable. These cities are too fortified. These people are too trained. Their armies are too elite. There's no way we can do this. We need to turn around and go back to Egypt. It would be better to be slaves in Egypt than to attempt to go into this promised land and to wage these battles. And, jo and Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron are pleading with these people, trust in the Lord, please, just trust God. And they say, they get so mad at Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron that they say, all right, we're going to kill these guys, appoint a new leader to take us back to Egypt. And then God shows up. And he speaks to Moses. Here's what he says. He's not happy. Numbers 14, verse 11 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God is saying, man, after all the things you've seen, still you don't believe in me? I defeated the superpower of the world single-handedly, and now you're on the edge of of the promised land. Do you think this is going to be any different? Have you already lost faith? And then what he says to Moses is he says this, I'm done with them. I'm going to disinherit them. They will no longer be my people. And he says to Moses, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. No longer is Abraham going to be the father of Israel. I'm going to start with you. Moses, you're going to be the new father of Israel. I'm going to start brand new with you, with a new people. And the rest of them, I'm done with them. Now here's what's going to happen next. You're going to see Moses is going to speak up and it's going to sound like he's bargaining or negotiating or trying to convince God. Now before we even get into that, What do we know about God? You're not going to be in negotiations with God and God take a step back and be like, wow, okay, that's a good point. I never thought about that. Never going to happen. But I want you to see why does God engage Moses like this? He's doing this intentional. It sounds like God is coming down to Moses' level and being like, well, that's a good point, or maybe I'll do that. or Yeah, it sounds like he's negotiating, but he's intentionally doing that to draw some truths out about his character. God is unchanging. He's, not, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows what he's going to do. He's engaging, engaging Moses in a certain way so we learn something about his character. But we'll play along. Look at what Moses say, verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. Now listen to his logic here. Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness." You see Moses' logic here? Scott, don't please don't do that. Please don't do that. And here's the logic. He doesn't say, man, you wouldn't do something like that. He doesn't try and guilt him. He doesn't say, don't you kind of feel bad for them? I mean, look at him. He doesn't try and, and get their compassion. He appeals to something else. He says, God, your fame has spread all over the region. What will it say about your glory if you turn your back on these people now? Now again, is this something that God hasn't thought of? No, of course, God knows exactly what he's doing. He's engaging Moses like this to draw out this truth. He's appealing to God's glory. Let's keep going because he says something else. Verse 17. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, quote, this is Moses quoting God back to himself. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. All right, we've got to stop here for a second. 
Because this might be one of the most misunderstood phrases in the entire Bible. This is not the only place this appears where it talks about the sins of the father and how that relates to their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. We've got to talk about this. Look at what's happening here. For starters, Moses appealed to the glory of God, and then in this negotiation, he's saying to God, he's repeating back to God what God has said about himself. He's quoting God to God. This is something that God said to Moses about himself when he was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of the Lord. Now, let's just pause here for a second. God, think of it like this. When God says something about himself, we have to remember, God is the most self-aware being in existence. God has no blind spots. He can't. It's impossible. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows himself perfectly. That's pretty much the exact opposite of us, right? Let's imagine you're interviewing someone for a job at the company you work at, and you're sitting there with this person. Who, which, where are you going to get the most accurate information about the person you're interviewing? Are you going to get it from them, or are you going to get it from the references that you call later? probably if they're good references, as long as the references are not like their mom and their girlfriend, probably from the references. Okay, can you imagine you're going to sit there and you say, okay, um, person I'm interviewing, um, are you, I just need to know this, are you a lazy person? Oh man, I am so lazy. I will never come to work on time. I will pretend like I'm going for a bathroom break and I'll be wandering around the parking lot playing Pokemon Go the entire afternoon, Okay. <laughs> I am super lazy. Most likely you're not going to hear that from the person you're interviewing, okay? When it comes to us, we have blind spots. We are, it doesn't matter who we are. We are not always the most self-aware about who we really are. The opposite is true about God. No one sees as clearly as God does. So when God says something about himself, we want to lean in because it's perfect and precise, revealing exactly who he is. So look at how he revealed himself. He says this. Let me just read part of this again. He says, this is God talking about himself. Moses is quoting this back to him. The Lord is slow to anger. Doesn't have a quick fuse. Doesn't get angry quickly. Doesn't get super over emotional. He's slow to anger. Look what else it says. Abounding in steadfast love. You know, that kind of love that says, no matter what, I will always be there. I am committed to you. I am covenanted to you. I will never leave you. I am always right there. That kind of love he has overflowing, abounding in love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He's a forgiving God. He pours out forgiveness. Man, those are things we want to know about God, but look what it says next. Forgiving iniquity and But he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Can we just go back to that for a second? That conjunction right there. He says, yes, God is full of love and grace and forgiveness. But he will address the guilty. He's a God of mercy and grace and love. But... He's a God of justice. Every single one of us in this room, we want 
that conjunction to be in that sentence. Because yes, we want his grace and his love and his mercy, but there is a day that comes in every one of our lives where we say, God, don't you see how I'm suffering at the hands of this person? Do you see the injustice that's been done in my life or that's, that's being done perpetually in my life? Do you see the injustice that I face? I, and we call out to God for his justice. We need a God who is perfectly loving and gracious, but also just. But I want us to take a second and look at how he describes how he's just. He says he's by no means overlooks the guilty, bringing the sins of the father, that bringing iniquity down to the third and fourth generation. Now that is one of the most um, confused verses in the entire Bible. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that when a father or a mother sins, he will wait and punish their innocent child or grandchild or great-grandchild. The Bible is absolutely consistent, unequivocally, that God is a protector of the weak and the innocent. He is the God of just justice. So what could that phrase possibly mean? What it's saying in there is that the reason that he's, he is so committed to justice is that so often the guilt, the sins of that father and mother, whether they realize it or not, they are passing down those same tendencies, perspectives, sins, and habits down to their children who then pass down the same sins to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And that the lineage has to suffer the consequences of these sins that get passed down. What do you mean by sins? Sins are when we choose to break the commands, the expectations of God. When he says, this is how humanity is supposed to live. And every time we break those commands, it brings brokenness and destruction into our lives. And those sins, what he's doing is exposing how the cycle of sin works. If I do a sin, it will, that tendency will be passed down to those little eyes that are watching me, that are absorbing my life like a sponge, and then gets passed down to the next generation. This concept is so absolutely vital for us to hear. Because in our culture, what we want to believe is, you know what? My own decisions, that's my business. The mistakes I make, man, that, that is no, that's my life. Just let me live my life how I want. I'm willing to accept the consequences of the decisions that I make. It's my life. Leave me alone. I'm not, it doesn't affect anybody else, just me. And that is always going to be a lie. A lie I'm believing. Because what the scripture teaches us is that sin, my decisions always affect the people closest to me. You know, there's an incredible study that was done um, about uh, well over 100 years ago. It was in 1874. And there was a guy by the name of Dugdale. And he worked for the New York prison system. And so he was starting to study these, doing some studies in these prisons, and he was interviewing these inmates, and he discovered the most in interesting, unexpected thing, that across prisons there were these inmates that several of them were interrelated from one large family. 
And there's across six different prisons he was working in, and so he decided to start doing a study. And from 1874 to 1877, he started studying this particular family. Now, there's a lot of different last names over the years, but he nicknamed them the Jukes family, and an an uncanny number of them had been incarcerated. So he began studying them, and he studied farther and farther back till he could find someone that was the closest semblance to a patriarch from the family, and he named this man, he was a real person, but he nicknamed him Max. And this guy, Max, was born in 1720, and so he studied all of this man's descendants and kin over about a 150-year period. And what he realized is this man, Max, had almost no redeeming value about him. He didn't learn a trade. He did petty crimes. He was almost did nothing productive with his life, just hurt himself and those around him. And so he studied what he estimated was something like 1,200 different people connected down the line to this guy, Max, either married in or direct descendant of this guy. And here are the statistics about this guy's family, the Jukes family, from about 1720 to 1877. Out of 1,200 of these descendants, only 20 learned a trade, and 10 of those learned it while in prison. 310 were professional paupers. Cumulatively, they spent the equivalent in poorhouses. They cumulatively spent 2,300 years living in poorhouses. 300 died in infancy from lack of good care and good conditions. 50 women in this line were prostitutes. 400 men and women were physically wrecked early in their lives from their own wickedness. 130 were criminals. 60 were habitual thieves. Seven were murderers. And their entire family from that time period cost the state what would be equivalent today to over $30 million. They cost the country far more than they, than they gave back to their, to their society. So from 1877, people were kind of chewing on this incredible piece of sociology. What does this mean? I mean, look at how those traits were passed down through the generations. And people began to start saying, hey, who knew about the study? We want to see like a picture of the opposite. Because is the opposite true? Like, could there be someone that passes down like positive qualities down through the generations. And so finally, about 20, 25 years later, a man decided to do another study about a a good individual, someone who's positive and passed down, see what their lineage did. So they went back to a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And if you've never heard of Jonathan Edwards, he's probably the most revered North American theologian in our history. He's known for his writings. They're still studied around in seminaries today. He's a brilliant thinker and theologian. His, one of his sermons is looked at as sparking one sermon, a national revival throughout the colonies in the 1700s. And he was born in the early 1700s about the same time as Max Jukes. So he started studying the descendants of this guy and, and he, so that they could be compared. Here is the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. 65 were college professors. 13 were presidents of colleges or higher institutions uh, of learning, such as Yale, Princeton, Union, Hamilton, Amherst, University of California, University of Tennessee, Columbia Law School, and Andover Theological Seminary. 75 were officers in the Army and Navy, 
They were prominent as officers, chaplains, or surgeons. Eighty served in public office. They were mayors. Some of them were governors of places like Connecticut, Ohio, and South Carolina. Several have been members of Congress. Three were senators, and one was the vice president of the United States. In his lineage, and this is just up until 1900, more than 100 of them were clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors. What a profound contrast that exposes the power of how things get passed down from generation to generation. Now, you might be sitting here saying, yeah, my family sounds a lot more like the first family you read (laughs) than the second family you read. In fact, I might be related to that guy now that I think about it. (laughs) There is something powerful this scripture is exposing. There's these traits we have landing in our lap more than just physical DNA traits. There are tendencies of all different kinds, habits. We have belief systems that have landed in our laps and we have to decide which ones are going to be dominant and we're going to pass on and which ones are going to be recessive. In my family, there's a disorder that's been passed down. It's now in my life. Um, It really only manifests itself when you're in the drive through line of a fast food establishment. It's where all of a sudden you're there at the line. I don't know why they positioned the menu right there. The moment you pull up, as soon as you look at the menu, they want to know what you want to order. I'm like looking around the menu. I don't know what to order. I'm lost. I'm confused. Okay. And I think technically the term is acute drive through line panic disorder. It's something like that. Maybe some of you have this. When I was a child, it was something like this. My dad would pull up and everyone goes silent. He's gripping the steering wheel. Okay, he pulls up. What, can, what do you want to order? What do you want? A, a, a cheeseburger. No, a double cheeseburger. Too late. He wants a cheeseburger. What do you want? You don't know? He's not eating. What do you want? Okay. And we're looking out the back. Are there people with pitchforks coming after us because they've had to wait too long? All right. It's like this panic that gets passed down. And to this day, I mean, I get a complex when I pull up to a fast food establishment. It's scary. Okay. So we all have these traits, we have these tendencies, these habits, they've landed in our lap. And we've got to decide which of these things are we going to say, okay, I'm going to, this is going to pass down and this is not. And the difficulty is some of these we're aware of. But maybe most of them, they're just who we are. So on a serious note, I mean, what are those tendencies now that maybe your father did or your mother did or your grandfather did and it's just gone down through the line and so now you, you've, you're that in your family and what you have in your family is, is maybe it's a culture of intimidation. So anytime someone's upset or mad or not getting their way or attacked, they just blow up and they shout and they get really big and they back someone down by getting loud or maybe getting physical. Or maybe it's a culture of, man, I, we never discuss, if, something, if something's going wrong, we never handle conflict here. That is, we don't, know, we don't ever do that. We don't know how to do that. That lays dormant and festering under the surface. And maybe that's now in my family. Am I going to pass it down? Maybe it's a, a culture of sexual promiscuity or broken sexuality. And maybe in the women in, in the family, there's a culture of immodesty. And maybe it's mothers teaching their daughters how to get attention by dressing in a certain way that accentuates their body or their sexuality. Or maybe there's a culture of infidelity. 
And it's just accepted. Well, my uncle cheated on his wife. My dad cheated on his wife. My grand, That's just what guys do in my family. Or maybe it's pornography. That's just, that's just an open, expected part of what males do in our family. We have this pile of things in our life that we have to decide, what am I going to draw a line in and saying, no more, this is not going to go any further. But it's so difficult because how do I know the things, in my, the things in my life? Some of them I'm aware of them, some of them I'm not. Let's see how Moses finishes this conversation. Let's read these last two verses, verse 19. It says this. Moses says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Do you see, do you see the dynamic here? people of Israel wanted to execute Moses. They're trying to. Then Moses, God appears and says, Moses, I'm going to honor you and wipe them out. What does Moses do? Does he say, actually, that works out better for me because they're trying to kill me? No, that's not what he says. He advocates for them. He intercedes for them. He says, God, forgive them. And so God says, because, I, I, uses Moses as the, as the one who's interceding and forgives them even though they are trying to kill him. Does that sound like a narrative you've heard before? The people of Israel are trying to kill God's rescuer, Jesus Christ. He's crucified, nailed to a cross. They're trying to kill them. Do they have the power to kill him? Of course not. He's God in the flesh. He has surrendered his life to them. And what does he do? He looks up to heaven and says, Father, forgive them, these people who are trying to kill me. And what he's literally doing, that is so true on so many levels. He's receiving the punishment for our sin on the cross. He dies on the cross, rises again from the dead, goes back to heaven, and the scripture in the New Testament says in Romans that he's standing at the right hand of God. And what is he doing on our behalf? He is interceding on our behalf. God sees them, but standing right next to him is one with scars on his hands and his feet because he has paid for the sins of God's people. And God says, you're pardoned because of this one who's interceding on your behalf. Do you realize that message of the gospel, that is the key that unlocks that is the key that could change the course of your family. Can you please hear this? If you have ears to hear, please hear this. Today could change the course of the history of your family because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what the gospel says is it says, I no longer have to pretend like I'm perfect. I can accept the fact that I am a wretch, I am broken, I have blind spots in my life. There's brokenness I have inherited that's been passed down that I need help fixing. It's not a surprise, it's who I am, I am a wretch, I've been declared righteous and, and holy by God, but I know what he is in the process of saving me from. And so because of that awareness, I don't have to try and pretend and prove to myself I'm perfect, I'm not perfect, Jesus was perfect for me. That unlocks the possibility of putting to death the chains from generation to generation that are now at my doorstep and at my feet and laying in my lap.
let me ask you a question. Let's make this practical. How well do you receive criticism? You say, well, man, I mean, nobody receives criticism well. No one likes to hear about their flaws. Let's not just sweep that under the rug for a second. Do you realize that is vitally essential to the future of your family? The ability for a loved one to walk into your midst and saying, let me show you a mirror because you have a blind spot like everyone else. Here, when you do this, you hurt us. And a wise person will say, this is an act of grace from God. I need this. Thank you for coming and telling me this. Because I need to change this. I don't want to be locked in this prison. But you know what most of us do? We, into, we either try to intellectually outsmart them and we turn their words into a nod and we show them, actually, let me, when I rearrange all of it, it's actually your fault. It's not even my fault. Or what I'll do is I'll, I'll play the victim and, well, well, if you didn't say it in those terms or why are you using the, that tone, if, if you had worked out better how you had presented this truthful information, then I would open, be open to receiving this truth. Or what I do is I just intimidate. I blow up or get physical or get loud or get vicious and get mean until they back down. And you know what I'm actually saying? No, please leave me in my cage. No, thank you very much. I don't want it. And so I've turned down now a friend who tried to speak truth into my life. Instead of thanking them, I've broken the friendship. I don't want to talk to you anymore. My spouse, who's been given to me to help me as we're growing together as one, they're going to be exposed to the sins so deeply in my life that no one else is going to see. That is a grace of God for them to expose that to me. And instead of saying, God, thank you for bringing this person. This is, these are painful conversations. But you are saving me, not just for eternity, but you're saying, I'm not leaving you where you're at. I've got a path to help you, free you from these sins. And so what happens in these marriages is there's intimacy and there's love and affection and friendship until we hit a level of change that I'm not willing to do. And then it stops right there. And I say, this is who I am. Why are you trying to change me? Because I'm a wretch. And what I'm actually saying is, no, no thank you. God, I don't want these messengers that you've sent into my life because I'm not comfortable enough of admitting I'm a sinner. I'm surprised that they found flaws in me. And I'm saying, no, I would prefer you leave me in my cage. I rip the keys from their hands. I throw it down. I close the door. And I'm going to be locked in my cage. But you know what we've forgotten? is that our sins don't just affect us. And so what I'm actually doing is I'm damning my children and my lineage to be locked in the same cage as me. I'm saying, no, thank you. I'm going to pass down this flaw down to the next generation. Rather than, thank you, I furiously want to know how can I grow and be more like Jesus. I want, to sp- I want these to end with me. Show me my blind spots. Have I created a culture around me with my friends and my, my spouse and my children? Have we created a culture where you can imperfectly attempt to show me my flaws? And I can say, thank you. You may have at one point in your marriage, one of, one of your spouses have said, we need to go see counselor, a counselor. If it's a rule of thumb, if your spouse ever says that, there's only one answer. Yes, I'll make the call. 
No, we don't need a counselor. What, what do you think I am? You think I need that kind of thing? Yes. We're broken. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of wisdom. So if at some point five years ago, your spouse tiptoed in and as gently as they said, can we go get counseling to work through this? And you blew up. You have an assignment this afternoon. Let me make the phone call because I want someone speaking into my life and showing me the flaws in my life. And maybe by the grace of God, you can have the privilege, the honor, the high calling, the favor. You have the high position of being the one that God changes the tide in your family. That could be you. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, can I read these words of healing over you? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're brand new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise God if you are in Jesus Christ. You are brand new. He's starting over in your family with you. What a high privilege. Some of you may be here this morning and you're saying, you know, the hardest part of, for me to grow spiritually is the wounds that I've received from my family. The hurt, the pain, the abuse, the brokenness, the abandonment. That I have all these wounds and suffering and I, I don't know what to do with that and it's holding me back from taking this step with God. You know, in our, in our home, um, our routine, we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and my little daughter, Scarlett, she's three. Um, every morning at the breakfast table, we have this little um, Jesus storybook Bible and an incredible resource, beautiful illustrations. They tell the stories of the Bible and show how Jesus is at the center of each one. It's powerful. And uh, we're reading these stories and, and um, Rebecca usually reads it to her at breakfast. If I'm there, I'll read it to her and and um, we've been going through over and over and over. We've gone through the book maybe five, six times already. And we got back through and we got to the Good Friday moment when Jesus is being nailed to the cross. And we, we flipped a page and there's an illustration. It's appropriate for her age group, but it's of Jesus on the cross. And Scarlett says, that's Jesus' boo-boos. I said, you're right. Those are Jesus' boo-boos. He got those boo-boos because he, he loves us. And so I read the whole story, and then um, uh, at lunchtime, Becca tells me she's sitting down, and we usually don't read the Jesus Story Bible at lunch, but Scarlett says, can we read about Jesus' boo-boos? Sure. Okay, let's read. So read Good Friday again, and then dinner time I get home, want to read about Jesus' boo-boos. And at this point, like, I'm trying to be a good sport because it's the gospel, but I'm hungry, okay, and I, I just eat a little first, okay, and then... The next day, it's Jesus boo-boos, Jesus boo-boos. Like, I'm just kind of like, could we talk about Easter at some point in this house? I'd like to get to the resurrection, all right? But it's Jesus boo-boos. That's all she wants to see right now. Is that's the mode that she's in, and Rebecca and I are talking about this, and we realized that's a legitimate, genuine connection that's starting to happen, an answer to years of prayer, a beginning connection legitimately to the gospel. Because we look at Jesus and we see his wounds. And we see his suffering. And we say, I have suffering too. 
I know. I look at Jesus, and just as Scarlett, I mean, she's, she looks at Jesus' boo-boos, and in her mind, she has boo-boos. She wants to see Jesus with boo-boos. We have suffering. Do you realize your Savior is no stranger to suffering, to betrayal, to abandonment, to physical abuse? That's who your Savior is. That's the Savior who's making you brand new and wants to walk with you and weep with you through it. Can you turn your life over to the Savior today? Have a fresh start. The Bible calls it being born again, becoming a brand new creation. Do you want that for you? Then I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Right there in your seat, if that's you this morning, I just want you to pray this simple prayer. Just between you and God, say, Jesus, thank you for wanting to save me. Thank you for the work that you did on the cross. Thank you for suffering for me. Thank you for having a plan to forgive me for my sins. I need a lot of healing, but I trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.